Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walk. I'm Father Roderick, recording this on a cold afternoon. It is about half past three in the afternoon and it's already getting dark. I don't know if it's because of uh, the winter and just short days or maybe the thick clouds above me are contributing to the extra darkness. It almost looks like snow clouds. I know that actually in some parts of Europe they already had snow. Um, although it's, the temperatures have been relatively mild for the past few weeks, it's only recently the temperatures have dropped below freezing point during the night. And even today, it doesn't feel that cold. Yesterday, actually, temperature was higher. Um, but it felt colder because it was more humid. Today is a bit drier, which I can also notice in, inside in my rectory. Because for the first time in more than two months, the humidity in the house is finally below 60% in most rooms. So this may be caused by drier weather outside, but also because they finally closed the the extension of the parish uh, space that they've been building for more than a year now. Um, they want to wanted to create a big meeting hall, um, but because of the post-COVID situation, where there is there are not enough people. Uh, available to uh, do projects like that and also the prices have been skyrocketing so they've had a lot of delays and so um, part of my house has been exposed to uh, the weather outside for a long time there's a lot of humidity coming from that space and they finally closed it up with uh, glass doors and now they um, they finished the floor and it's it's drying out, and I can. It was so <laughs> stunning to see what, what a difference that made. Like the humidity dropped twenty percent within within the span of a week, and I I didn't realize. I, so I've been having a lot of issues with humidity in the house, which of course is not is unhealthy. It makes it feel very kind of I don't know, just cold, extra cold in the house, especially because I'm not using the central heating that that often um, and it was also uh, giving me some issues with mold and uh, I was using a de dehumidifier <laughs> it's doing the opposite of of, of a humidifier it, it, it extracts humidity from the air and I would extract more than 12 liters every week from the few rooms where I used it all the time. Looks like those troubles are over now. And, uh, and maybe just the, 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 the fact that humidity is not as high as it used to be, it kind of feels, I, I don't know, it feels better. Uh, let's see, I'm walking towards the, the woods. The cars here that pass me by all have their lights on. It's, it's, this is the darkest time of the year. Um, and of course, uh, starting at Christmas, the days will become longer again. And we can start dreaming of, of springtime. <laughs> Still feels so far away. I had a great time this weekend. Um, 
if you've been following me on uh, on social media sorry about that noise uh, you may have seen that I visited Dutch Comic Con which of course is a spin-off of uh, the very famous Comic Con conventions uh, the, the biggest one being San Diego but it's uh, it's a phenomenon that uh, has spread all over the world because of this kind of almost global pop culture at least in the western countries and uh, even in the Netherlands which for a long time withstood the pressure of <laughs> this global cultural domination of superheroes and science fiction it, we finally caved in and it's now one of the bigger um, you could say events attracts a lot of people um, there were 47,000 people uh, at the convention this weekend I had uh, I'd ordered tickets in September already knowing that oftentimes these events sell out and this was the first one since COVID uh, they've had very small gatherings with all the restrictions and so they could only let in uh, a very small percentage of the crowds that normally come to these conventions. So they, they've been able to do a, something, but this was the first kind of old-fashioned regular convention in a long time. So I got my two tickets, and of course I still have my parish obligations on Sunday, so um, I, I took the train to Utrecht, which actually is a kind of a surprisingly quick uh, journey. It's about half an hour, and then you're there, and the convention center is straight next to the central station. So I, I was actually, I, I, I just didn't realize it felt farther away, but it wasn't. And then in the train already, um, everybody is dressed up. It's, of course, one of those cosplay events as well. So it's so funny you st step into the train. The trains are overcrowded these days in the Netherlands. We have a very uh, well organized train system but there too the lack of personnel and uh, the rising costs have forced the train company to reduce the number of wagons that they normally uh, uh, ride on the various uh, trajectories and so <laughs> we were it was it almost felt like the, the the metro the underground in Rome where you're feeling like we say like her herrings what is it like like fish in a ton <laughs> it's like you're so stacked up and uh it's very hard to get even a, a seat uh so you're just basically standing but the overall vibe in the train was so good because everybody was going to the same convention and so you start conversations with complete complete strangers because you all know that uh you have you have that culture in common um so for, on saturday i made sure I was there uh, at the opening hour because there were a number of uh, guests that were going to be interviewed on stage and uh, some of which I really wanted to see this year. They had some very interesting guys and uh, and, and Jenna Coleman was there. Um, if you're a Doctor Who fan, you know who she is. She played the companion of two Doctors um, for multiple years. Um, I thought she was absolutely fantastic in Doctor Who. She recently also got a role in the first season of The Sandman um, and let's hope that they will do a second season because I love that show. Um, 
it didn't do as well as Netflix expected, but still, it, I thought it was just a, a masterpiece in television, science fiction, fantasy. Um, and, and so, uh, but she couldn't talk about that that much because she's, of course, under NDA. She cannot reveal anything about future contracts, but she did talk a lot about her time on Doctor Who, which was great. And it's always fun to see what actors are really like. Of course, an interview session on a stage uh, on a convention like that is is far from their, let's, let's say, natural uh, environment. But you can easily spot if someone is genuine and is authentic or if it's uh, someone who is just doing a performance. Um, and it was it was fun to see that that uh, Jenna Coleman Coleman in in real life is very much like the character she plays in Doctor Who, um, of also very professional actress. She's been uh, she she starred in in a ton of um, well known and lesser known television productions and even movies. Uh, and then, in addition to uh, Coleman, we had. Uh, Dan Fogler. Uh, Dan Fogler played a character in the Fantastic Beasts series, but his first role, his first major role, was in Fanboys, which is a movie. It's a, like a, a romanticized story of a couple of Star Wars fans who want to go to Skywalker Ranch. And he plays a driver in that movie. It's uh, He started talking about that and almost no one applauded or reacted to to that because the audience was so young and I remember that movie very well um, but you can clearly tell that a, a generation has passed and there's a new generation that has never heard of that movie but they know him from two major franchises Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them and The Walking Dead in the later seasons he also had a recurring role um, great guy. Very, very good with the audience. Uh, lots of self-deprecating humor. <laughs> it's clear that he does this all the time. <laughs> but, um, but it was spontaneous. It was funny. He was super relaxed, which also radiates to the audience. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was fun to see him in real life. And then, uh... One of the guests that I was most curious about was the first one of the day. That was the reason that I took the train so early to Utrecht. And that was Lou Ferrigno. Now, the older listeners will recognize that name because they know that he played the Incredible Hulk in the late 70s, uh, early 80s television series. I think it went on for about four years with Bill Bixby, who played... Uh, Bruce Banner and then uh, Ferrigno played the the Hulk side of things and at the time um, Lou Ferrigno was a, a, a well-known bodybuilder who actually was also in the, um, uh, the the big hit movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger Pumping Iron um, and, and Schwarzenegger was also of course a rising star at that time and uh, uh, there was quite a bit of rivalry between the two um, but he got cast as the Incredible Hulk. And I watched that series as a 10-year-old boy religiously. I loved it. It was one of the only 
the, one of the only superhero television series on TV. There was nothing like it. At that time, we only had two channels in the Netherlands. And at the, we, we still had a black and white TV. And I, I think I watched the f later seasons in color because then finally my father caved in and we got a Sony color TV. There's a tractor here on the field. Uh, on my left, he's plowing the field. Uh, this is where they grow. Um, what, what kind of uh, stuff do they grow here? Oh yeah, um, well it's some kind of wheat basically. And, uh, but it's all done organically and uh, it's a local initiative. They harvest it each year in the fall and then they have a, a big day where <laughs> that is celebrated. It's almost like a token symbolic um, field for, uh, the, you know, that shows how in the past the peasants here in the area would cultivate the land. Although I, I guess that back then, a century ago, they didn't have tractors like this. <laughs> so anyway, Lou Ferrigno, um, watched that. I loved it. It was so formulaic also. Um, you knew that after about eight minutes of every single episode, uh, Bill Bixby's character would get into a fight with someone or would get angry or would be in a conflict and then his eyes would turn white and he would start to burst out of his uh, pants and uh, his underpants miraculously always kind of like resize themselves but the rest of his clothes including his sneakers would uh, <laughs> would, would be destroyed by the 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 growing size of the of the hulk now Luferigno um is is nothing like the the other versions, kind of the more modern versions of the Hulk that we now know, they, most of them are CGI. Um, he's, he was just painted green, but what you see is what you get. He was a, he was a pretty imposing guy, a very tall guy even uh, today. Although, of course, nowadays uh, he is, uh, he's retired. He's uh, in his 70, early 70s. But it was still so cool to hear him um, telling these anecdotes about his time on the Incredible Hulk, and uh, and 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 it was something that really struck me, which I totally did not expect. Um, and it was actually a moving story. One of the people that asked questions, so we we could just ask questions, and it was not very crowded because it was the early hours of the day. And as I said, um, Lou Ferrigno is really some an actor that is known by my generation, but definitely not by the younger generations. They've never seen that series on TV. So there was plenty of time to ask questions. I, I asked him a question about uh, his most recent television show uh, that he part partook in, which is called The Offer. I think I talked about it on, uh, on the break, my other podcast, uh, which is a <clears throat> fictionalized account of the making of, uh, of The Godfather. I thought it was really well done. He plays a gangster there. <laughs> And, uh, but the, uh, someone else asked a question about, uh, first introduced himself as, a, he was always afraid as a child when he watched the Hulk, and then he wanted to know what Lou Ferrigno himself was afraid of, or if he would be able to kind of comfort the, the little kid inside who was afraid of, of, of this monster. And then he told the story um, that, he, that he shares from time to time about his own youth and how he... Um, 
was diagnosed at an early age with uh, hearing loss. He only had about 20%, 15% of, of normal hearing. Um, and his parents, especially his father, uh, at first didn't know that. And they thought he was just not listening. So he would get uh, beat, or beat or punished. And, uh, and, they, and his father would lock him up in a, in a cupboard. And, and he was terrified as a, child, as a young child. He didn't know what was happening. He could barely, of course, understand the world around him. And so he was, he was petrified of the dark. And then uh, another thing that he was very afraid of was in school because of his, um, of his handicap, of his uh, uh, limitations in hearing, he was always bullied by other kids and they would beat him up. And then at home, his father would beat him up because he didn't stand up for himself. And, um, and that actually motivated him to not cower away, but to, to set himself a goal like, I want to be strong so I don't have to be afraid anymore. And that launched him into his career as a bodybuilder. It was interesting to hear that how that frightened uh, a child with, a, with hearing loss um, uh, was so courageous that he wanted to grow and, and, and th- that's, that's what has driven him uh, throughout most of his campaign and now, or most of his career. And nowadays he's raising money for foundations that help other uh, well that help children today that for one reason or another are unable to participate in uh, in society because of uh, because of their handicaps and uh, what I loved about his talk was just his approachability and uh, how humble he was and and really authentic very kind a bit shy even and he used to say that because he was bullied so much in, in primary school, he was a very introverted kid. And so I was sitting there thinking, geez, I didn't know I had so much in common with, with Luke Ferrigno. It, it was really um, very special to hear that part of his story. And that inspired me to... I, I took my filming equipment with me. Um, and that is partially out of... I guess a latent sense of guilt that I'm spending two days of my time and I'm, I'm buying these tickets that are not that expensive. They're 25 bucks a day. Um, but then I spend so, so many resources on, on, on what is basically just an entertainment related event. And I know that of course, why not? (laughs) Why wouldn't I take some time off and, and spend uh, uh, resources and time and money on on a, a, an area that I love so much. It's so much part of my world and my culture. But there's always this nagging voice that... Oops, I almost tripped over a tree branch here. That, that um, wants me to make it more useful for others as well. I, 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 know, I know how it works. But anyway, there's a positive side. Uh, th- that made me want to film some interviews and I the first day I was just walking around and looking for people to talk to um, but I had no idea what story to tell I, or, or how I because all these fan events are more or less the same you got lots of people that are in cosplay 
Um, they, you've got halls that are dedicated to TV series. You've got the comic section, video games, board games. Um, and then, of course, a huge, huge marketplace where you can buy all these uh, geeky gizmos and, <laughs> and, 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 and uh, souvenirs and stuff. The question, of course, is where's the story in that? Um, so I struggled a bit with that during the first day. But after thinking about that story of Lou Ferrigno, uh, the next morning when I woke up, I had to uh, celebrate Mass in the, the parish church next door, where I live. And I was like, I'm going to tell that story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a homily about the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> Which is always a bit, it feels so weird because I'm talking to an audience that I assumed had no knowledge of that world. For them, it's such a foreign uh, universe. They had already had to suffer through another homily that I did uh, a while ago about Godzilla. (laughs) And uh, uh, so now I I I I want to tell the story. Also because I feel like I want to share what my life looks like. Uh, they, they see me on Sunday. Uh, they know I'm a priest. They know me from television, from Dutch television, where I do a totally different type or where I make a totally different type of, of, of programs than what I do on YouTube or TikTok. I was like, you know, I'm just going to tell them why I went to Comic-Con and, and what I learned there. And, and it was... I woke up that Sunday morning and I knew what I wanted to say. It was the... It was the Sunday of Christ the King, which is the last day of the liturgical year. Um, This upcoming Sunday, as I'm recording this, I'm recording this on Tuesday. So next Sunday will be the first Sunday of Advent, which is the time of preparation for Christmas, which in the Catholic tradition is the start of a brand new liturgical year. Um, And so Christ the King is always the, the final celebration, the final Sunday before that. Let me just go to the left here. Don't recall this path through the woods that looks inviting ah and very calm there are no dogs today oh that is so cool (laughs) i love dogs but sometimes a bit challenging when you're walking around and they see my microphone and they think it's a it's a toy to play with um the 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 solemnity of christ the king is not that old as a, as a celebration. It was instituted less than 100 years ago by the, the Pope at that time, who, in a, in, a, in a period of history where a lot of uh, things were changing in society, uh, there were lots of um, former monarchy, monarchies that were changing into republics and lots of turmoil, he felt the need to emphasize the kingship of Christ um, in a time where a lot of people were confused about, well, what does that mean? What is, what is even the use for a king? And he, uh, as, as you know, it's a, it's a very important name for, for Christ, for the Messiah, the, the king of peace. Um, uh, and it, it's, uh, of course, linked to the divinity of Christ, who was there at the beginning of the universe, will be there at the end of it. Um, he's, he's the ruler of, of all. Um, at the same time, the Pope wanted to stress how much his kingship differs from political kingship, from 
our monarchies in, 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 in the real world, not that Christ's kingship isn't real, but it's like more than real in a certain way. <laughs> it's, it's, it goes beyond our reality. It's hyper real or super real. Um, in a sense that, that uh, Jesus is not um, someone who is coming to vanquish people who doesn't he doesn't have an army his strength is his weakness is his utter surrender to the will of the father it's uh it's closeness to the poor and to the needy to the sick and hungry and the the readings uh, of that sunday uh emphasize the importance of that example and so if we are sons and daughters of christ the king we too should follow his lead and serve one another instead of trying to dominate and use power and influence to uh, to make changes. You, you change the world by becoming small. That's what Jesus teaches us as our king. And so I use that example of Lou Ferrigno as someone who has has lived through those both extremes. He was super vulnerable as a child and knew, knew um, uh, how, how much... Uh, the 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 people with power, the bullies, the 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 critics, the, the attackers, how much they can hurt you, and how much that hurts, and then he becomes himself this icon of strength, but he uses that to help other people, and to to show kids that they don't have to be afraid of bullies, and to give them courage, and. Uh, so anyway, I did a homily about that, and <laughs> more than what I can summarize here. Uh, and to my great surprise, actually, people really loved the, the homily. And there were even some people that told me that there, oh, there was this one parishioner who said, my daughter is going to be there. She's been working for months on her costume. She had like an anime costume. She showed me some pictures on her phone. And, uh, and she was so excited to hear me talk about that event. Because <laughs> it's something that as a parent, she was not very familiar with. But it's definitely something that was important to her daughter. And, um, and, and some other parishioners also uh, said, you know, this is, this is, this is important to be there. Um, <laughs> we want you to go there. Don't stick around. Don't talk to us now. You can talk to us next time when you have more time. But, but please go to Utrecht now. You need to be with these young people and talk to them. So, um, the, so the, the kind of the, the idea that I had for... Uh, this documentary or or whatever it is going to be um, was very much guided by that question of why is this event so popular and it's not just in the Netherlands it's everywhere why why is this superhero cult so so important and 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 I always come back to my theory that it's because it's modern mythology and mythology has always been part of human culture. Even before Christianity, stories are so important, and especially stories that transport you to another, another, like a possible world, of course. Uh, the, the, like the, the demigods, etc., in the, in the Roman and the Greek mythology were, were fictional characters. But at the same time, they represented it like this dream of, being powerful, being safe, having like uh, supernatural helpers that would lead you, that would show you how to how to safeguard the future for your children, and in a sense, 
today's mythology around superheroes or stories like Star Wars or Star Trek, they are they have one thing in common and that is that they help us to imagine first of all, it always starts with imagination to dream about a world where we can actually solve our problems where we we are stronger than we often feel when we're confronted with war like what's going on in Ukraine or or our our huge worries about climate change about the the injustice in the world we often feel so powerless and that is why these stories i think appeal so much to us we we need heroes this is why the bible is full of heroes and it's 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 oftentimes these stories are told and and have been retold over generations and so a, a, a number of these people that we know from the stories of the old testament they're they're greater than life they're bigger than life um because they represent also our aspiration to be uh, able to to change the fate of ourselves and of the world in which we live. And so I, that helped me to value what is happening on these events, um, especially as a priest and as a theologian, because I see that that, that ideal is not gone. We, we oftentimes get so discouraged and we think that nobody... Uh, dreams anymore and we're all so cynical it's like what I talked about last week but even myself I'm sometimes noticing how cynical I have become uh, because it's so hard to keep hope in a world that is that is often so so broken but these stories help us to refocus on our aspirations on our ideals and so that became my lead my leading question my hypothesis for the story as like so if if this is our hunger and it's so universal can i find stories that show me that this is not just a theory in my mind but that is actually how uh, this young generation um how how they uh live out their dreams in a certain way how they get inspired and, and I think it's important for me as a minister of the Catholic Church to listen before I, even before I judge or before I think, oh, you know, this is how you could maybe relate this to Christianity. Obviously, I have my ideas about that, but it was much more important for me to, well, let's just ask, is that, do they really feel it? And you know what? Every conversation that I had, it emphasized a, an aspect of, of that. Um, there were quite a few... Um, fans that I interviewed that told me how important this day was for them to feel connected to other young people to have that common language how much that helps them um, because they also oftentimes feel alone and isolated the, 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 this is a great story by the way I, I, I was walking around in the video game area and that whole um, hall, it was like huge, was dominated by all the hardware companies and Nintendo and, uh, you know, the big uh, gaming companies. And in the middle of that, I noticed a small uh, section where they had, I think, about six to eight computers and some screens. But the controllers were very weird. 
they were all like in strange shapes and instead of a steering wheel you'd have to use your fist to bump on a a black circle and then um and there was this blind boy who was sitting there his cane was leaning against the table and he was playing a racing game which was projected on a big screen above him but he wasn't looking at the screen and the, the monitor that was connected to the gaming console was black there was no image and so I was, I was very puzzled I was like well what is this and uh, uh, and then I got into a conversation with a guy who organized that exposition and he told me that he had created a foundation to help children with disabilities to to partake in the video game co- uh, culture and he said there's so much that can help them play video games like these special controllers and so he explained to me that the blind boy for instance was able to finish that race he was playing forza which is a super popular racing game because the computer tells him what to do and gives him instructions like veer a little bit to the left uh, accelerate decelerate now you have to brake there is someone coming to your left you have to move and so it's like voice driven racing and he said very often these this this these uh, children with disabilities are super isolated because it's it's so important for um, the, the the culture for youth culture to be able to par- participate in these video games um, and I want to help them find ways to do that um, and, and and he said you 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 would be surprised to know how many just regular kids without disabilities are suffering from loneliness and how how isolated they feel and let alone if you have if you are blind or you cannot use your 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 arm he himself um can could only use half of his body he had had a stroke um a couple of years ago and he was a very successful communications officer in a, in a company and all of a sudden he realized that there's there's so much that I can't do anymore and this is one of his passion projects where he wants to help children that are much younger than him to overcome that disability and to make social connections through gaming. And I was like, well, I was so happy that I was able to get that story um, because to me it's an example of what is happening during these events. It's, it's bringing people together with a common language, creating community, which is so similar to what my mission is as a priest what our mission is as a church it's to bring people together and to create bonds of friendship and i know that there are lots of people that say well but that has nothing to do with faith where is jesus in all this and i actually got attacked that same weekend by some person on twitter who um uh had a a twitter account that was uh, covered in you know like holy pictures and uh, like a big banner of some Pope Pius X or something like that. It's clearly one of those um, uh, culture warrior accounts. And this is, this is, this is something that really um, saddens me to see how, how often Twitter is, is used not as a tool to, to bring people together, but as a weapon to attack others and so I was being attacked like look at this priest he's it's Sunday and he is walking around on that pagan festival 
wasting his time leading people astray. Well, you know I'm not active on Twitter anymore after everything that happened over the past few weeks. I moved my conversation to Mastodon, which is different from Twitter in the sense that it is uh, federated and so nobody owns Mastodon. It's not just this one company. Um, it is a, it's, a, it's more like email, you know, everyone can have a, everybody can have an email server. Your company can have one. Not everyone is on Gmail. But all these email providers can talk to one another and that is kind of what Mastodon is. Uh, you can just host your own like server with the software but that enables you to also connect to all these other servers all over the world nobody owns it but what i like most about mastodon is not that it's federated but that it is uh it's it's really made as an alternative to twitter where it's all about the conversation and the respect for one another there's a huge um uh, emphasis on making it accessible to people with uh, with impediments. You know, so for every picture you post, you're invited to add a description of that picture. I've never seen that on any other platform where it's really part of the process of posting is what if you are blind? You still want to know what that picture is, right? Well, just add a line where you describe the picture. And that, for me, is just an example of that solicitude, that care for the vulnerable uh, participants in the conversation. Um, it's also much easier on Mastodon to shield yourself from this kind of verbal abuse that is so rampant on Twitter. Uh, so w what happened was I think that that person uh, just saw an easy way to um, to show off his or her own, I don't know, how do you say that there? Virtue by, by basically showing the world how, what an awful priest I was. I mean, that's not, not that's nothing new. I get that ever since I am doing this work. Um, but I felt it was so missing the point of what is happening there. It is an attitude of condemnation of anything that doesn't look like the church. Whereas I feel that the proper Catholic way of looking at events like this and human behavior like this is always look for the good. Where is the Holy Spirit already preparing the way? And we know that where there is love and friendship, God is there. Maybe not in an outspoken way, but if you love, you already know God. It's like St. Paul when he is talking with random strangers in, uh, in, in, was it in Athens or Corinth? And they tell him about this, this unknown God in the Pantheon. And he says, you know what? I know who that God is. Let me tell you about him. And it's this great example of how even the Apostle Paul already worked with what God had prepared in those people, even though they had never heard about Jesus. That's how I think... Um, that's how I look at this, these events. And I'm, what I'm trying to do is first is, is, is search for the signs of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's reading the signs of the times. Uh, we, we, all, we are so quick to, to say God is not there. God is with us inside the church, but 
the rest of the world goes to perdition. And it's not true. It's never been true. The Holy Spirit is at work inside the church, definitely, but also outside the church, just as evil is, is at work, not just in the outside world, but also on the inside of the church. It's, it's not a closed garden. And so what we are called to do, at least the, the gospel that I use as my guidance in the work that I do, is the gospel of the, the disciples of, that, that go to Emmaus. And Jesus meets them where they are. He walks with them. And the first thing he does is he listens. It's said explicitly in the gospel. He walks with them. So he goes to meet them where they are. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. And he accompanies them and he listens to their questions, their, their, their grief, their, the, all, the, the sadness in their hearts. And then he talks to them about all how all that, what they're talking about, had already been predicted and, and was supposed to happen. And it's only at the very end of the story that they recognize him when he is breaking the bread with them. And that's when they realize it was Jesus. And our hearts were burning and we just couldn't label it. But he was already there before they had identified him. And I think that that for us is, that is what mission is. That's why I feel myself always a a, a missionary and not just um, someone who who tends to the the flock that is already there. I want to go out there and meet those those sheep that are looking for food for their soul who are looking for company maybe some of them are astray and and need to be brought back um and it's it's but i'm also there to learn and to listen and to uh to be available to them if they need me and that was the second so i'm always a bit allergic to people that uh judge me because i'm not doing the regular priest stuff in their eyes, right? I would say, have you ever read the gospel? <laughs> Do, did you ever re- Have you ever noticed how there is this one group of people that tells Jesus um, that he too shouldn't meddle with all these sinners? And, 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 <laughs> and then Jesus goes and he, he eats with them and he spends time with them and he befriends them. Nothing changed. I mean, that's why those stories are part of the gospel, because that behavior, that judging uh, behavior, is is in every one of us. It's always a temptation, uh, and it's usually out of fear. What I've noticed is uh, walking around there uh, on that convention floor, and with my camera as almost a pretext to start conversations, uh, because I'm, as you know relatively shy but when I have my camera I'm there to tell a story so I'm, uh, it's much easier for me to uh, just start a, a conversation ask someone if I can interview them and interviewing of course also forces me to ask questions to be interested uh, to keep the conversation going which then has a, a, a really positive impact on the people that I meet because they feel validated like there was this this guy who was um, dressed up as a chainsaw man, which is uh, uh, the, the, the Japanese manga uh, character um, who has uh, died. He's been murdered by zombies, but he's resurrected by this little demon. Uh, looks a bit like a dog. 
and but his nose is a chainsaw and then <laughs> the demon brings him back to life and he's absorbed or it's actually the boy absorbs the demon and then he himself can also turn into his, his arms and his head can turn into chainsaws and he joins a, an organization that is fighting demons in 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 modern day tokyo or something like that um, a totally wacky story but so popular um, there were tons of cosplayers that were and, and it's kind of what i already felt when i was doing my tiktok channel and People were asking me to please comment on Chainsaw Man. So anyway, I was interviewing this guy. He was putting on his costume. There was something wrong with the with the the helmet that he'd created with the big chainsaw on top of it. And uh, and so I asked him some questions, and he immediately noticed that I knew exactly what I was talking about. He's like, "Dude, aren't you a priest? I mean, uh, were you in church this morning?" He asked. <laughs> I said, "Yeah." And now I'm here. Oh my gosh! And then I asked him so. What do you like about the story? And at first it's always a bit, you know, I don't know. I just like it. It's simple. And uh, he's fighting demons. And I asked him, so what What are the demons that you would like to fight? <laughs> and, and then, you know, you start a conversation like that. And you, you help them think about why intuitively they love something. And through my questions, it was actually, you know what? Well, maybe I am also... Maybe I do want to help rid the world of of demons and of evil, <laughs> and uh, it was a, a fun conversation. And um, it's it, that happened time and again during these two days, where you felt that during the conversation, during the interview, something happened. Like they gave me a ton of great stories, and and they're all they're very creative people, especially the cosplayers. Uh, but also, my questions helped them also to appreciate more what they what they were doing, um, and so the old, the overall story that kind of emerged out of those two days is: um, what if what if what if this this um, comic con the, 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 these events like these are in fact a, a, maybe a reaction to the lack of, of mythology or religion or faith or even church in our modern day society. These kids are not different from generations before them that still went to church. They have the same longings, the same questions, the same struggles. And they need each other to face the world because they feel small and walking around in the superhero costume makes them feel strong if it, 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 and they know it's it's imaginary but the dream itself is so important because that pulls you out of that misery there were a couple of these young people that told me that literally I asked why are you here and they said well you know what we've had COVID for two years we felt so isolated we miss our friends. We want to be here for our friends. And then now we've got the war in Ukraine and everything. And the world is so gloomy and dark. But when we're here, we're, we feel empowered. We feel happy and bright. And it's so... There, it's such a relief to be here in an environment where everybody is accepted. That was another big thing that I heard over and over again. Is how much everybody felt welcome there. Um... It was this lady that I talked to. She's the head of uh, 
the Hoovian society in the Netherlands. And um, I was interviewing a few people there about Doctor Who. They had this big TARDIS that they built themselves. <laughs> that was also uh, uh, part of their, stand, their uh, booth. And, uh, and she said, you know, for her, what was so, um, so attractive about Doctor Who was that from the, mo from the early days of the franchise, it has always been um, a message of, of exploration and curiosity and hope um, that, that even if we are very different and we look strange and we feel, we feel terrified, if we come together from different cultures, and that is why the doctors constantly change and the companions are from, from different backgrounds, But it's it's the same, it's the same, the same story. They are all hoping to help humanity and protect people against the forces of evil, and and even in that they are pretty vulnerable. The the doctor can't always solve the situation, but friendship is a very important theme in in Doctor Who that helps them to still you know be brave and to do whatever they can. And um, as she said, that it it struck her how much. Doctor Who was appealing to a whole range of neurodivergent people that may feel very awkward, to have all sorts of questions about their identity and maybe even gender. And uh, But how stories like Doctor Who give them something to relate to and that connects them with with other fans of the franchise and how wonderful that was. That that And then, and she, I don't know if it was... If she told me that, or if it was someone else, um, but someone told me, you know, this this event or events like this are a safe space for people that in that often feel very uh, much like outcasts in in their day to day life. And here, you know, they put on a costume, or they're just a fan, but they're accepted. And, 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 and that was so wonderful. And I got lots of stories like that and interactions where I felt, oh my gosh, this is, this is, these are the stories that I want to share. And while I was filming, I was also, again, a, a, I felt that, that I, this, this, was, this was my thing. I miss filming. I miss uh, exploring the world and connecting it with, the tradition in which I was brought up. And, um, and, and it's, it's almost, you feel like a witness of something beautiful that God is doing without even, uh, <laughs> without imposing himself. It's, it's, it's like, this is the harvest, it's growing. You only have to look around and it's there for the harvest. But you have to be there in these fields because that's where things are happening and changing. And so when I got back, um, I, 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 I realized that this whole year has been an exploration of what, or discernment process, you could even say, of what I am called to do in this unique position uh, that I'm in as a priest and a theologian and also a geek um, and uh, as you know I tried very different approaches and um, I, 
I've, I've felt again that the uh, taking my camera, talking to people, and then tie that together, giving it a, a creating a story out, out of all of that, giving it a d- sense of direction, and thereby communicating that direction of being a guide almost for people that intuitively know that there is something happening here and this is important to them. But then having someone, just like in that story of the disciples of Emmaus, who tells them, but didn't you know that that is actually God who is at work in, in your heart? Is it, that is when you feel the comfort of friendship. Do you know that there is a source of that friendship? <laughs> and then, of course, it's also the challenge and the adventure of proclaiming that gospel and, and uh, evangelizing despite the total opposite image that people often have of the church. Or they feel like the church is not, that's not an organization of the good guys. No, they're a bunch of bad guys and they're intolerant and they, they don't love, they do just judge and they're very exclusive and, and, uh, and they feel unwelcome and, and misunderstood and judged. And then what I try to do is... Um, is show them uh, as a a representative of that church that I want to listen to them, uh, that I value them. Uh, And I formed over the years real friendships with a number of people that have really nothing to do with with faith uh have there was this guy who came up to me and said you know i'm an atheist but i love what you do and i really appreciate that you're here and that you make time for us uh, and that you share our story that that we can share our stories with you um and every once in a while and it's very rare but still super valuable is sometimes people will after especially if they have known me for a couple of years they will they'll start to tell me about their personal life and ask me questions and then it turns into a pastoral conversation and it's not about the quantity and and that is a that's a big change in my own approach over the last few months uh, and maybe even my move to Mastodon from Twitter has has kind of reopened my eyes to what this is all about, the work that I do. It's not about the numbers. It's not about trying to play the algorithm. And I've been so focused on that sort of stuff. Like, how can you make a dent in this? How can I get a piece of the of the social media pie and get noticed and grow my audience and subscriptions and patrons and whatnot? But it's on on Twitter that that sort of stuff is important. On Facebook, on YouTube, it's all about the algorithm. TikTok as well. Use the right keywords. Uh, have the perfect editing pace. It's it's a ton of effort in order to get maximum reach. But Mastodon is the opposite of that, where it's like I only have a couple of hundred followers there, but I engage. I try to have a conversation. I don't even. I mean. I, I wouldn't even know how many people are following me uh, because it's not about that. It's about contributing to other people's lives and sharing what, what nourishes you and what 
what inspires you and then help other people that may have questions. Um, and, it, and these conversations are, are uh, a breath of fresh air and, and reminds me of why I'm here. It is to have these meaningful conversations and I'd rather have one good conversation with one of those 47,000 young people that walked around there on Comic-Con than to be recognized by thousands that just say, oh, you're that dude from TikTok. And then, you know, move on with their lives. There's this one guy who was dressed up as Jesus. There were actually two, two uh, cosplayers that had, that had dressed up like Jesus. Both of them uh, were cosplaying for the first time, and both of them had chosen Jesus as their uh, cosplay costume. And both of them were not religious. And it's funny, it's, oftentimes they will proclaim that they are atheists. So I asked them, are you religious? Is that why you wanted to play Jesus? And, and then they say, I'm atheist. Well, what they actually mean is that they are agnostic. An atheist is someone who de- actually denies the existence of God. Uh, an agnostic is like, well, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It's, it's not, it's, I, I don't subscribe to it, um, but I also don't deny it. It's just, it's not important to me. And then at the end of the day, so I, I had that interview, and they were both super kind. They were just, yeah, I asked the second Jesus. <laughs> Why Jesus? What, what do you like about him? And, yeah, I don't know. He's just a chill dude. <laughs> of course I could react like, but that's blasphemy. It's the savior of the world. It's the Messiah. You don't talk about my Messiah like that. And I'm thinking, you know what? He, he, he probably has never opened a Bible, but he does have that positive image of Jesus. And so um, it takes courage to walk around like that. And then um, I, asked, uh, I asked him also, what kind of reaction did you get? And both these cosplayers were amazed that people would, that people were so positive and so um, almost elated when they, when they met this cosplaying Jesus. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they just had never expected the impact of their costume uh, on, on the people there. And it was almost as if, well, that's just me hoping and praying that by dressing up like Jesus, they experienced a little bit of what Jesus means to the people in the, even even in a non-religious uh, at, um, environment like like Comic Con, and maybe I told them, you know what? <laughs> if you have any questions about uh, the character that you are cosplaying, you know where to find me. Just look for Father Roderick. You you never know. Like <laughs> both Jesuses are now following me on social media. Think you know what? It's just two people, and maybe well, nothing will come from it. But isn't this what it's all about? Jesus was also walking with two disciples after the resurrection on the way to Emmaus. Two people, just two. That's not much in terms of clout, in terms of social media influence. But it's all about these individual encounters and, and then maybe the Holy Spirit will start to work. Anyway, that's what I wanted to share with you today. Um, it's, a, it's a long story, but um, it, it re-energized me. And uh, 
and also helped me in this process of discernment of a, what, what, what do I want to focus on. And I've often um, concentrated on the tool. Like, oh, I need to do more TikTok. I need to be more efficient. Um, I, I want to be able to uh, create this and that. What do I need? How can I uh, get the word out? But what I'm discovering more and more, and it's so obvious that you... It's, it's so, so simple that I tend to forget it all the time. That it's ultimately... What, what am I called to do? It's to meet people where they are and to have a real encounter, to listen, to learn, and if necessary, to help, to clarify, to explain. That is my mission. And whether that is for a YouTube video or a TikTok short or, or for a documentary... You know, I, I noticed the documentary format helps me the most to have meaningful conversations and to tell a broader story than I can tell with social media. It's this podcast where I can just talk for about an hour and I can go more in-depth and, and reflect with you and discern with you uh, when it comes to what is the Holy Spirit asking of us and how is God at work in my life and in the life of the people that I meet. Quickly cross the road here and then go to the left. It's getting really dark now. I guess about half an hour from now. <laughs> it's pitch dark. And uh, so, and I feel like uh, this energized me. I was, it was super exhausting to walk around for two days on a convention and having all these conversations and then also, you know, filming it. You've got all the technical aspects. Um, so it was, uh, it was very strenuous. But at the same time, it was so motivating. And I was like, I felt so alive. I was like, this, this is what I love. This is what makes me happy. Uh, and this is what, what gives my, my work as a, as a priest in the media uh, meaning. And hopefully it can help spread the word about what is happening here. Not to promote geek culture, but to show the world and the geeks and also the church how God is not absent from this work, from this world. That he is at work, maybe not so much, well, no, he's always at work, also in the church. But maybe we are just forgetting about what he does in the hearts of so many that still have to be evangelized and that it has encouraged me it gives me solace to see the good in people and the ability to friendship it restores as they say it's a bit of a trope restores my faith in humanity days like these and I'm thinking you know what if the whole world would be like this <laughs> that is the work of God that is what God wants Thank you so much for listening. Also, big thank you to those of you that make it possible for me to do this work. Um, if you want to help me continue to do this, uh, I hope you want to also invest in this mission, uh, that you can contribute as a patron with a, a monthly donation. Uh, if, if that's within your means, if you're 
excited just like I am about this kind of work and about this message that is so important, then please go to patreon.com slash fatherroderick and uh, we'll talk soon. Have a wonderful rest of your day. God bless.